All right, welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm Dr. Emlyn Gremlin, coming at you fresh. Annette. Fresh from the island. <laughs> yeah. And I'm Dr. Emma Dilemma, who never left, <laughs> never abandoned no. you. No, you're steadfast. <laughs> For yeah. island life. And yeah, we're both back. And... I I've regained sanity post teaching an intensive course and my students didn't hate me and I didn't hate my students by the end. So I think that's a win win yeah. situation. Yeah. Now we're all just in quarantine. What better time to record a new episode of our of our when, podcast, when neither right? of us can leave and when you have you you dear listeners have a need for entertainment yeah and we shall provide that (laughs) (laughs) yes Emlyn, who you got for us today (laughs) so uh i was trying to do something uplifting yet thematic which is a hard thing to do oh so something that relates to kind of the bizarre situation we're in with this a coronavirus pandemic, but also that isn't extremely depressing. And um, I think mm-hmm. I found something. Okay. So this week, in the midst of this global health crisis about the uh, coronavirus pandemic, I wanted to honor the medical professionals who are working tirelessly to sa- help save lives and who are also putting themselves Ooh. daily at risk. And so this week, yeah. we're going to talk about Clara Barton, the founder and first president of the Ooh. American Red Cross. So, yeah, a little, great. you know, uh, adjacent to STEM, but extremely important. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Let's go. Clara, Clara Barton, Barton, let's go. Let's. <laughs> I have had so much coffee today. Let's do it. Clara oh Barton. Gosh. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, Clara! <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like hulking out in my closet right now. Yeah. That's yeah, it's super awesome. good. It's super great. Okay. So, Clara was born on Christmas Day. She was a little little Christmas present. Oh. Uh, on. Just she like was Jesus. Essentially like Jesus. She's the North Oxford, Massachusetts <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> She was born in 1821 on Christmas Day in North Oxford, Massachusetts. So a great, a great present on such a day. And she was born, uh, her father was Captain Stephen Barton, who was a member of the local militia, Mm. uh, who at the time were fighting against uh, local Indian tribes. I tried to figure out what specific uh, tribes they were in combat with, but... Couldn't really figure that out, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. weird. I'm guessing a variety of different groups. Um, yeah. And at the age of only three years old, Clara was sent to school with her brother, Stephen, where she excelled in reading and spelling. And her only known friend was the child detective, Nancy Drew. What? <laughs> Oh, you mean the books. 
No, I think she had one friend named Nancy Druden who wasn't a child detective, but oh. they didn't say anything else about her. So I like to imagine that it was Nancy Drew, child detective. Wait, Nancy Drew was not a child. Nancy Drew was a grown woman, I thought. Teenager? Or was she a teen? Maybe she I think she was, she was a teen. teen. Wait. Was Nancy Drew really a teenager? I thought she was a grown woman. Maybe I was just so little. Nancy. She seems so mature to me. Um, female. Oh, yeah. Brilliant teen detective, says yeah. Wikipedia. So- or Google. Damn, I had no idea. Okay, wait. Was she actually friends with Nancy Drew, or are you saying she read a lot of Nancy? From Drew my books? understanding, she was she only had one friend whose name was Nancy Drew, oh, a different Nancy Drew, okay, okay, a less exciting Nancy Drew. But yeah. I like to imagine she was friends with the fictional teenage detective. Yes, agree, agree. Because why not? Me too. Okay. Yes. No, my bad. that was an extremely bad, confusing statement that I made. <laughs> No. Yes. It was straightforward. I just thought maybe she was reading Nancy Drew books, but then I realized, hey, those are <laughs> That's true. Yet. That's true. That would have been okay. the <laughs> uh, most straightforward fact that would have clarified. So. So she was solving so she mysteries was solving, with at, her at friend At the age Nancy of three, Drew. she was solving mysteries with her teenage friend, Nancy Drew. It's weird, but let's mm-hmm. just accept it. Yeah, I accept it. When Clara Barton was 10, her brother fell off the roof of the barn uh, and act- and had some serious head trauma. And so Clara oh. decided to try to nurse him back to health. Whoa. As, you know, as a 10-year-old often does. And in addition to distributing, yeah. you know, the prescribed medication to him, she also placed leeches on his body to help him heal. Yeah. From head trauma. This was standard treatment at the time because we knew nothing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we did. This was part of the four humors theory, which, if you want to know, like, in depth detail, you can, when you have, if you're self quarantined and at home and looking for things to do, listen to the Sawbones episode three about bloodletting. And I'll tell you all about this bananas major theory in medicine called the yeah. four humors theory yeah i think I've but essentially that, the but... idea was like Ugh. there are four humors blood yellow bile black bile mm-hmm. and phlegm all your favorite favorite yeah. liquids um so, so many good, good liquids. liquids and you need them all in balance to be healthy and so sometimes you have to add right. or remove one of your humors in order to get it back in balance so so wait, <laughs> if does that mean like no, that's too disgusting. I can't ask this okay, no. wait. So if you're say not producing phlegm, or if you're producing too much phlegm, uh-huh. say they'll suck out your blood. So if you, like like how- essentially, they would often like remove certain things, right? So re- using okay. leeches to remove blood if they thought you're your blood humor was too much. Um, uh, or you might have to throw up or take a diuretic or take a laxative. I don't know how they gross. added if you had too low. You can watch, you can listen to, <laughs> drink water, listen to the bloodletting episode yeah. if you want to know more. But essentially, okay. Okay, um, right. 
with her help, you know, maybe due to the medication and the care, less probably because of the leeches. Yes. And despite the doctors calling her brother uh, a lost case, uh, she helped him make a full recovery. So she had some aptitude okay. for, you know, yeah. healing people and, you know, taking care of them. Yeah, yeah. that's good. So Clara was extremely timid as a child. You know, she only had that one friend. And her parents tried to enroll her in high school to help her become more outgoing. But she became even more timid and then also depressed and stopped eating. So they stopped her from going to the... They didn't... They no longer forced her to go to this high school. Sad, yes. But her family then later moved in with their relatives who had four kids. And Clara played with the boys and got along with them really well. Um, and, but after her, she injured herself while horseback riding with the boys, her mother decided that Clara should focus on more feminine skills. Of course. In order to do this, she invited one of Clara's female cousins to help her develop her femininity. I don't know what that entailed, nor do I care to. Yeah, I mean, what were feminine skills in the 1800s? Um, probably like... Knitting and sewing, sewing and yeah, um, writing. Love I don't know. Letters. I don't know what was considered like except maybe piano, like indoor things that you could do in in a dress. Drawing. Yeah, yeah, things you can do in yeah. a dress. Right. Okay. Poetry. 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 All good. Th- I mean, all good things in and of themselves. Yeah. But I don't think being forced yeah, to do those. But if you want to do other stuff. Yeah. Right. So after, you know, she developed her femininity, her parents encouraged her to become a school teacher. And so she she did. She had an aptitude for this and became a school teacher at the age of 17 in 1838. Hmm. And she served for 12 years uh, in schools in Canada and West Georgia. Wow, that's great. Yeah, so... She did this for quite a long time, but after her mother's death in 1851, so that was after her 12 years of teaching, she decided to further her education and pursue writing and languages and went to the Clinton Liberal Institute in New York. And the principal of the school noticed her clear prose and tremendous abilities, and they became friends that later developed into a romance. Oh. I mean, she's, you know... At this age, at this point, third twenty nine or something, or thirty. Yeah, it's not. No. I wish I had more information yeah. because that was all I could find. I want to know more, but alas, he liked, he liked her, her pros and her tremendous you know? abilities. She won him over. <laughs> After this, she also then taught at a school in New Jersey, and Clara learned that a neighboring school had no public school for the children to go to, and so she was contracted to open the first free school in New Jersey. I'm not quite sure what the difference between a public school and a free school is, but a free one is free, I guess. And maybe you had, (laughs) in some way, pay for the public school at this period of time. Yeah, that doesn't really make any sense. I mean, I guess it's maybe like charter Mm -hmm. schools are sort of... yeah. Well, no, you don't have to pay for that. I don't know. I don't know. Do the, 18, the 1800s, who knows what's happening there. 
So yeah. she was so successful in creating this free school that she hired another woman to help her teach the 600 people that were attending. Yeah. Whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you need at least one more person, I think, to help with that. It's like a yeah. town hall, yeah. not a class. <laughs> and the town was really impressed by her and rallied and raised $4,000 to build a new school building. Great. However, cool. once the building was completed, the new school board replaced her with a man as principal and paid him twice as much as they had paid her, stating that the position what? as head of such a large institution was unfit for a woman. So, But she was the uh-huh. reason they uh-huh. built the school. Uh-huh. I'm, on your, I'm on your side. The school... The school wouldn't yes, exist but, without her. But now that it does exist, it's very unfit for a woman. <laughs> oh, my God. Everyone's insane. <laughs> Emlyn, this is what I've decided. With all this toilet oh paper my God. hoarding, I just think everybody's crazy. Yes. I agree. Anyway. Hot, hot take, take, I guess. People really. <laughs> are crazy. And so she was demoted to female assistant. Um, to female, female assistant. assistant, not yes, just female assistant. Uh, and then she quit because she's got. St- I'm gonna throw my mic. <laughs> she's got standards, and she said, "Fuck this," and left. Yeah, yeah, good for her. And she says about this time later on, "I shall sometimes be willing to teach for nothing, but if paid at all, I shall never do a man's work for less than a man's pay." Yes. Yeah, I hell love yeah. it. Volunteering's great, but if you're gonna pay me, you gotta pay me the same amount as a man. Yeah, especially when that should be exactly her position to begin. I made I made this whole thing. <sighs> okay, <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> this episode, it's not depressing, but it is angering. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then. In 1855, Clara moved to Washington, D.C. and worked as a clerk in the U.S. Patent Office. And she was the first woman to receive a substantial clerkship in the federal government and was actually paid the same as a man. Great. Love it. Good. Things seem like they're going well. For now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then... Oh, gosh. (laughs) Under political opposition to women working in government offices, she was demoted to copyist and then received abuse and slander from her male counterparts. What the They spread rumors uh, around the office that she was having an affair with her boss and that she had never married but had biracial children. What? I, people are racist and suck. They just made yes. up. They made up that she even yes. had children. Yes. Like, that's so bizarre and weird. Yes. Just because they didn't like her working uh-huh. next to them. Exactly. I know. Psycho. It's totally psycho. And some articles say that she was then subsequently fired during James James Buchanan's presidency, uh, a president no one remembers. I did. I had to look up. Like, I was like, was he a president? <laughs> I mean, I know like yeah. of him, but he. But, <laughs> but I could not tell no. you one well, fact about. Well, now his you will. Apparently, he fired her for what, or he had her fired for what he called her quote black republicanism. 
which I think what? means like Republicanism back then was being liberal, right? Because we like swapped those terms. And right, I think right. it was that she believed in, you know, civil rights and suffrage and stuff like that. And so that was what he called black Republicanism. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> People are so horrible. <laughs> I mean, she's No, not, she's wonderful. But it just seems, yeah. She's a trooper. I know. Wow. James Buchanan, a name Shall- I just remembered mm-hmm. today and wish I could forget <laughs> forever. But now you have this one fun fact that he did. Great. Good job. Good job, guy. Uh, racist. Motherfucker. Um, and so, yeah, some articles say that she was fired by him, and other articles said that she quit due to the abuse, low pay, and uh, subsequent depression that came of those two, that combo. Yeah. yeah. So oh. after that, regardless of whether she quit or was fired, she moved back to Massachusetts to for a while. Yeah. But... Presidents aren't presidents forever. Everybody should remember that. Unless you're... In uh, Russia? Yeah. Putin. (laughs) Uh, And after Abraham Lincoln was elected, Clara returned to the patent office in D.C. as a temporary copyist. So she wasn't promoted again. She just kept her lower job. But she did so in the hopes that she could pave the way for more women in government service. I know. Well, good for her that she even like was brave mm-hmm. enough to go back. I'm hoping that it was a different, given... a bit of a different atmosphere, because I didn't hear anything about that yeah. period of time being really negative. So, but even you know, if you worked at a place and oh yeah, I would never go back. And then they got a new CEO, I would just be like, of that. Like, I need yeah, to do unless I'm becoming else. <laughs> the CEO and then firing everybody who is mean to me, I don't want to go back to that company. Yeah, exactly. Mm-mm. Right. Okay. So while she's in D.C., so she's in D.C. during this time, and then on April 19th, 1861, the first bloodshed of the American Civil War occurred in what is known as the Baltimore Riot. Yeah. Wow. And victims from the Massachusetts Regiment were transported to Washington, D.C. And Barton, wanting to help her countrymen, mm-hmm. went to the train station and provided crucial assistance to 40 men injured in this riot. Oh my gosh. And Clara recognized some of them who she had actually grown up with or who she had taught as school children because this was the <gasps> Massachusetts Regiment from her, her town. Right, right. Wow. And Clara and other really other sad. women provided them with the needed supplies and offered emotion emotional support to keep their spirits high while they were being treated. And this was kind of a a turning point wow. in Clara's life which ignited a passion to help the wounded and destitute. Like she'd always kind of had this, you know, she helped her brother, she you know helped various people, but this kind yeah. of fueled this desire to really um make a difference and help the wounded. Um in the war. Yeah. Is this our first civil war 
person? Yeah, I guess so. I feel I, like we've never talked about the Civil I thought War you, on the, on the American I thought Civil you War. asked, was this the first Civil War? And I was like, oh boy. Oh, sorry. D- we're going to have to... You're like, I'm I don't know that much about <laughs> American history, but I do know we've only had one uh, <laughs> so far. <laughs> no, sorry. It, I mean, like, is this the first I think time so. we've talked about someone who lived in the U.S. during... I think so. I don't think we've talked about... We may have mentioned it during Florence Nightingale, because I know she came and, like, came to the U.S. and helped with certain things, but that was only, like, tangentially. Gotcha. Right, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Learning new things, because I know nothing about the American Civil War. I mean, you must know something. I know there were the Unions and the Confederates. Yeah. That's it. I, I mean, I know what it was over, and I know what the outcome was. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. <laughs> okay, yeah, okay. let's keep going. This is not a test of my knowledge of the Civil War, Emma. I'm not <laughs> testing you. I'm just saying I know you know more than... <laughs> okay. Okay, okay. All right, so there was, at this time, little formal nursing education... And this was kind of before the spread of Florence yeah. Nightingale's efforts of, you know, higher nursing standards and practices and stuff like that. So Barton was quickly mm-hmm. able to pick up the skills that were required to be a nurse during this time. Yeah. Okay. And after that, she focused her attentions on collecting medical supplies for Union soldiers. From the beginning, she used her oh. own living quarters as a storeroom and distributed supplies. She, like, Whoa. made this call out to a lot of uh, women's organizations and also just in general to the public for them to bring her supplies. And so then... Wow. Yeah, she congregated all of them, and then she finally, in August 1862, was finally given permission to work on the front lines of the Civil War. I mean, how do you, like, get permission? You just ask the president? Um, she was a schmo- she was a schmoozer, and I think okay. she talked to a lot of people. One, of, she like got a variety of different patrons who believed in her cause, including Senate the senator of Massachusetts at the time. So I think she had connections to try okay. to get this permission. Yeah, cool. Okay, and officially. So this kind of this kind of goes to your point. The U.S. Sanitary Commission was in charge of providing nurses for the Union Army, and many field officers only wanted male nurses. But Clara Barton bypassed this whole kind of sanitary commission entirely. She never became a part of it, like a registered nurse with them. Essentially, through sheer force oh, okay. of personality and her ability to provide these like desperately needed supplies to the front lines, Clara. Barton convinced mm-hmm. officials to let her go to the front lines and and work there actively. Wow. So there was so there were nurses, but they were mostly yeah. male. Yeah, okay. And so she's basically starting kind of a new maybe culture mm-hmm. of nursing just by her own like yeah. free will. And they had like almost no supplies. And so Right. Yeah, because they were all tied up, I guess, with bureaucracy. And so the supply wagons were always, like, days behind. And so she just kind of was bypassing all of that and, like, getting donations and then going to the front lines. Right. Cool. Wow. 
So at this time, while she was gaining supplies, she placed an ad in the Massachusetts newspaper for supplies and received this huge influx. And she worked to distribute these supplies uh, to clean field hospitals, to apply bandage dressings, and to serve food to the wounded soldiers on the battlefield, including at the Second Battle of Bull Run, the Battle of Antietam, and the Battle of Cedar Mountain, if those mean anything to you. That's so brave. Yeah, I think I've been to the a couple of those All the places, names seem familiar to battle me. Battle sites. Yeah. And although she was from... I mean, they're very deadly. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think the Battle of Antietam was, like, the most... The highest casualty rate of, yeah. like, any war. I don't know. Very, very high yeah. casualty rate. Uh, and although she was from the North, she also helped Union and Confederate soldiers alike. And even with the influx of the supplies she received, she not did not always have enough supplies. And so, for example, at the Battle of Antietam, that huge, really, really deadly battle, she ran out of bandages and so ended up using corn husks instead. Oh, wow. That's really kind of ingenious. Though I would, I would prefer bandages, if given the choice. Yeah, corn husks seem a little scratchy. Yeah, they seem like they're not going to soak up. Just... I don't know. You know, you get, you work with what you yeah. got, but I I would opt not for mm-hmm. corn husks if I have the right. option. <laughs> if I could choose, I'm going to say no to horn corn husks. <laughs> can I? Can I not? Bandages. <laughs> oh man. Following the Battle of Cedar Mountain in Northern Virginia in August 1862, she appeared at a field hospital at midnight with a wagon load of supplies drawn by a four-mule team. The surgeon on duty, who was overwhelmed by the human disaster surrounding him, wrote later, quote, I thought that night if heaven ever sent out an angel, she must be one. Her assistance was so timely. And so she became known as the Florence Nightingale of America and the angel of the battlefield after coming to the rescue with needed assistance and supplies at the battles of Fairfax Station, Chantilly, Harper's Ferry, South Mountain, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Charleston, Petersburg, Cold Harbor, and Cedar Mountain. Oh my gosh. I mean, how is she getting to all these places, I don't know, so quickly and effectively? I mean, she's got her four-drawn carriage. I think she... for a lot of it, she just followed yeah. the army as it went uh-huh. uh, and then just, you know, was then at all these battles. And one of her most harrowing experiences on the battlefield was when a bullet tore through the sleeve of her dress, but didn't strike Oof. her, but it instead killed the man who she was tending to. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I feel like, wait, I feel like I've seen that... Um reenacted um yes like with TV shows maybe potentially with mandy moore as clara barton on drunk history what there's a drunk history about clara oh, barton maybe um that has mandy moore as clara barton and it's oh great my gosh that's funny yeah <laughs> that's funny <laughs> okay so then in 1863 while she was Working on the front line, she began a romantic relationship with Colonel John Elwell. I wish I knew more about this. Oh. This is the only information. There's, there's not a lot of personal information, though I'd love to know more about it. But that's okay. 
That's all we need to know. It's private. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can't what? tell just you. tell me. <laughs> what if I just came out with all these facts yeah. about him? He like... was six foot three with a slack jaw. Slack <laughs> isn't jaw? That, isn't like that a thing? This, that just makes me think of like a mouth breather. Okay. Very sexy. Anyways, so she had that, you know, everybody's about to, everybody's dying. You got to find comfort where you can in these trying times. And then in 1864, she was appointed by the Union General Benjamin Butler as the lady in charge of hospitals at one of the front lines, the Army of the James that was in Virginia slash North Carolina. So all of the work she had done being this angel of the battlefield, getting and providing all this needed assistance to all of these battles that... You know, gave her such a reputation that then she became in charge of all the hospitals, these field hospitals for this one big army. Okay. But once she was put in charge, was she then quickly (laughs) demoted and replaced by a man? Given twice her salary? No. Not this case. Finally. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. The Civil War (laughs) ended. The Union won. Yay. Right. After the Civil War ended. Okay, that yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah, you know that? <laughs> okay, kidding. good. So after yeah. the Civil War ended, Clara discovered that thousands of letters from distraught uh, family members were going unanswered because the soldiers they were asking about were either buried in unmarked graves or were labeled as missing. So there's all these people wanting to know, like, oh, where's sad. my brother? Where's my father? Where's my son? And they're just not yeah. getting any answers. Right. And so she was given... They're yeah, they're freaking out, and she was given permission um, by President Lincoln to run the office of missing soldiers in Washington D.C. in wow. order to find and identify soldiers killed or missing in action during the war. Dang. And Clara and her colleagues wrote nearly forty-two thousand replies, <gasps> and helped locate twenty-two thousand missing soldiers. Oh my god! Isn't that incredible? So they were going out to these battlefields trying to identify yeah. people, I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah. Wow. That would be pretty mm-hmm. harrowing. And she helped find, identify, and properly bury 13,000 soldiers who died in the Confederate prisoner of war camp oh my in gosh. Andersonville, Georgia, which sounds awful. I can't imagine seeing one dead I person, know. much less... 13,000. I know. It's... Yeah. So Congress eventually decided she was doing very good work and gave her $15,000 to help her um, with this missing soldier's office. Yeah. Okay. Good. And after she... After... um, Well, kind of during the time where she was... In the Office of Missing Soldiers, she was also gaining widespread recognition by delivering lectures throughout the country about her experiences during the Civil War. She also met with Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass during this time and and became an activist for both women's suffrage and civil rights. Fatigued emotionally and physically with all the stuff that she had been involved in in the past years... She finally closed the missing soldier's office in 1868 and traveled to Europe for a needed vacation. While in Geneva, Switzerland, she was introduced to Dr. Louis uh, Appia, 
who is a Swiss surgeon in the field of uh, military medicine that was part of a newly formed international committee of the Red Cross. Mm, Okay. And so they talked a lot about what the, the International Committee of the Red Cross was trying to do and their goals. And she remained in Europe right. till the beginning of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, where she assisted the Grand Duchess of ba- uh, Baden, which is like a historical territory of southern Germany and northern mm-hmm. Switzerland that doesn't exist anymore. Okay. She assisted the Grand Duchess of Baden with preparing military hospitals, giving aid to the Red Cross Society, and supplying work for um, the poor in Strasbourg. Uh, as well as in Paris after the siege of Paris. So she helped with a lot of various things for the Red Cross, the International Red Cross during this time, during her holiday. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like a blast. Sounds very relaxing. And after this European war, so this was during the Franco-Prussian War, she was given honorary decorations Mm -hmm. of the Golden uh, Rose of Baden and the Prussian Iron Cross. So, you know, she's just famous everywhere. She's doing good works. She can't stop it. Can't help herself. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. This was not necessarily the relaxing European vacation that she had envisioned. But when she returned (laughs) to the United States, she started a movement to get the U.S. government to recognize the International Committee of the Red Cross, this newly formed movement. And she met with President Rutherford Hayes in 1878, and he stated that the U.S. had no need for a Red Cross in America because the U.S. would never face another calamity like the Civil War again. What? That is truly stupid. (laughs) It's very short-sighted. That's so just ignorant. It's like, this is the worst thing that we've ever faced, and we'll never face anything like it again. You're like, okay. Yeah. No more no. wars after this. Don't worry. <laughs> and But she persisted, however, and convinced his predecessor, President Chester Arthur, that there should be an American Red Cross okay. branch by arguing that the new American Red Cross would respond to not just war, but also non-war crises such as natural disasters, like hurricanes, fires, things like that. Right. Providing hum- like people are still Yeah, there's still going to be humanitarian crises <laughs> even if we're not having yes. a war at home. Wow. So she also argued for the ratification of the Geneva Convention by the United States. So this is, you know, the international oh. agreement to protect the sick and wounded during wartime wow. without respect to nationality. There's a variety of different things in the Geneva wow. Convention. So she was a huge advocate of the Geneva Convention um for the US. Clara Barton then became president of the American Red Cross in 1881, and true to her word, the American Red Cross helped people during the floods in the Ohio River in 1884. Uh, She provided food and supplies to Texas during the 1887 famine and helped in the aftermath of a tornado in Illinois and a red fever epidemic in 1888. So doing what she said, a lot of non-war disasters that the Red Cross were helping in. Yes, right. She also, um, during the Spanish-American War in 1889, aided refugees and prisoners of the war. And the people of Santiago were so grateful for her work that they built a statue in her honor in the town square, which remains there today. What? That's awesome. I'm telling you, international fame lady. (laughs) 
She also, Clara Barton and the American Red Cross, also responded to the humanitarian crisis in the Ottoman Empire in the aftermath of the Hamidian massacres, also known as the Armenian Genocide, where 80,000 to 300,000 Armenians were killed. Uh, Barton sailed to Constantinople and opened the first International Red Cross headquarters in Turkey, where she, along with um, other Red Cross officials from, you know, the other international chapters, traveled to the Armenian provinces to provide relief and humanitarian aid. I know. It's not... What a brave I know. Like, she's just going to all these major disasters and... Yes. I can't... Yeah. I just can't even fathom, like, seeing all the things that she must have seen. I know. I mean, she's... And, like, not having fear for a lot of these cases, not having fear for your own safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So her last field operation as president of the American Red Cross was in 1900 at the age of 79, Ooh, where she helped wow. victims from the Galveston, Texas hurricane and established an uh, orphanage. So she was still going out into the Aww. field and like helping people yeah. person to person when she was like 80. Yeah. Wow. In 1907, she published her autobiography, The Story of My Childhood. And then on April 12, 1912, at the age of 90, she died in her home of pneumonia. Wow. A long life. 90, given that she lived through the Civil War, is like kind of crazy. Like on the battlefront. Like, yeah, that's really wild. And her home in Glen Echo, Maryland, where she lived... For most of her later life, which served as the headquarters of the American Red Cross, was established as a national historic site by the National Park Service in 1975. And this was the first national historic site dedicated to the accomplishments of a woman. First one in 1975. (gasps) 1975? Oh my gosh. I was like really moved by that. And then I was also like, wait! Yeah. Wait, 1975? Fuck that. Like, I can't believe it took that long yeah. before you preserved any site like, of a woman as, like, historic <laughs> in the U.S. <sighs> and it's also, you know, I mean, I guess 70 years after her death, at that point it is historic, but even yeah. so... I mean, I think things are considered historic yeah. relatively quickly after people's deaths or, like, preserved. Yeah, yeah, they should be. Otherwise, how? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm surprised it was even still like standing. Yeah, mm-hmm. around by the time they yeah decided yep. to preserve it. <laughs> and this site indefinitely closed in uh, 2018 for repairs. So maybe it'll open again. I'm not sure. Oh. Hopefully, yeah. In 1997, a governmental carpenter was asked to check out a building for demolition in D.C. And instead, he found a treasure trove of items belonging to Clara Barton, including signs, clothing, Civil War, soldiers' socks, an army tent, Civil War-era newspapers, and documents related to the Office of Missing Soldiers. And so yeah. they had fa- he had found the Office of Missing Soldiers, which had been lost and forgotten, in part due to the city, I guess, in the like 1870s, they had changed all the addresses. Oh, okay. And so people didn't actually know where that office used to be. and But it had still, like, stood there. Oh, wow. And so the National Park Service saved the building from demolition and slowly restored it. 
And so Clara Barton's Missing Soldiers Office Museum, run by the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, uh, opened in 2015. So now it's a museum as well. Yeah. That's great. They just kind of like stumbled upon it when they were going to demolish it. Oh my gosh. All right. And then finally, uh, Mandy Moore, as I said before, plays Barton on an episode of of (laughs) Drunk History, which is very fun. It's season five, episode one, if you are quarantined and looking for things to watch. Yeah. (laughs) And she has at least 23 schools named after her. And she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1973. And that is the inspiring and life-changing story of Clara Barton, the founder and first president of the American Red Cross. Woo! You know, I really like that she had, like, a lot of different love interests over the years. I I mean, like, you know, those things are personal, but I also think it's nice to know, like, these people are people, and, like... Yeah, she had a rich, full life, you know, (laughs) while helping thousands, if not millions, of people. (laughs) Everybody's dying around you. You gotta find love where you can. Right. You uh-huh. gotta savor yeah. your your every day. Yeah. Inspiring. But yeah, no, I think it's it's nice to hear <sighs> like a full rounded life. She did so much, yeah. but also, you know, you gotta have some love affairs. Yeah, had fun. Yeah, too, so much hopefully. fun. <laughs> oh man. I'm sure those cl- those mean clerks regretted it once she was in the Hall of Fame and hanging out with Lincoln and Mm-hmm. Anyways. So, yeah. So, that's my story about Clara Barton. Woo. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Should we do our women Yeah, it's been so long. Segment? <laughs> I know. I, like, forgot. All right. I realized, like, we really haven't covered... Yeah, done that in... No, because we, we took... Yeah, we took... something? <laughs> we didn't do it for the last two-part episode. For, um... Yeah, because we just had yeah. so much. Yeah, we haven't done it in, like, the new year, I guess. The women yeah. have been working the whole time, even yes. when we're not talking about them. <laughs> Tell me what you got. Okay. Work, 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 work. So, yeah, so this is for any new listeners this year. This is our segment where we just give some quick shout outs to ladies making science history Woo-woo. today. <laughs> and so I wanted to give. Two shout-outs to researchers that are helping the world better understand the coronavirus and how to fight it. So, of course, there's, like, all this research going on right now to try to basically get a a handle on what this new coronavirus Mm -hmm. is all about, right? That's My work is half half of the people are just frantically doing that. Yeah. And so, let's see. I found two recent studies that came out in the last couple weeks. One, so shout out one goes to Petra mm-hmm. Zimmerman and her co author Nigel Curtis, who analyzed a bunch of data coming out of China in order to describe the effects of COVID 19 in children. Mm, okay. And so they found that children are as likely to become infected with the new SARS coronavirus but they're less likely to be mm. symptomatic or to develop severe symptoms. And so these are things maybe you've read in the news already, but I just want, you know, people to understand there's a lot yeah. of researchers that are 
you know, behind all of these things that are coming out about the coronavirus. They also described that children were more likely to have stomach issues Hmm. than adults, and they often had a household contact. So someone living with them either passed it to them or they passed it to that person. But no children had died from the virus in China by the time they submitted their paper for publication in February. And I don't know if that's still true mm-hmm. right now, but um, but yeah, that's pretty interesting that it seems to just be way less deadly for children than a lot yeah. of other viruses. And like, I think some people might take that as, well, maybe we don't need to close schools if it's not infecting or if they're getting infected, but they're not right. having symptoms and it's not killing them. But if you have students coming to school that are asymptomatic, then they're going to spread that disease among all of the, the kids, some of who will be immunocompromised. And then the ones that aren't are going to, yes. like, everybody's then going to go home and infect their parents or their grandparents their family who members. may be more susceptible right. to actually getting sick or dying. So, And so, yeah, exactly. So children can still mm-hmm. just be reservoirs, even if it's not killing them. And also, just because not a lot of children have died doesn't mean yeah. none will. So... <laughs> you know, still better to to just try to reduce yep. the spread of the disease as much as possible, you know. Um, okay, and then shout out to goes to, and I'm linking to these sources if you want more details. I do. As usual. I want it. Um, okay, shout out to goes to Kara Brook at UC Berkeley, who led a study on why viruses transmitted from bats to humans always seem more deadly than viruses transmitted from animals to humans. Um, Non-bat animals? yeah, there's been... Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, non-bat animals. So there's been quite a bit of research being conducted on what animal source this novel coronavirus originated from. And uh, one of the major hypotheses is that bats were one of the original reservoirs mm-hmm. of this virus even if you know we might not have actually contracted yeah. it from bats but a lot of people think it evolved mm-hmm. in bats um and so just like ebola and mers in the previous sars outbreak those viruses all evolved in bat- bats and then were transmitted to i think an intermediate animal and then gotcha. to humans And so the researchers wanted to know, is there something about bat immune systems that primes these viruses to be really deadly once they get to humans and other animals? And so they did a study where they exposed immune cells in monkeys and bats, like in in the lab, basically, to um, different viral particles. And they found that monkey cell immune cells were destroyed upon being exposed to these viruses. <laughs> That's rough. But when they, yeah, but when they exposed bat immune cells to the viruses, the virus was able to infect a few cells, but most cells were quickly mm. walled off, essentially. And so uh, they found that bats basically mount this really rapid immune response that stops the majority of their cells from becoming infected. And so they don't die from viruses. 
or these types of viruses mm-hmm. at least. And the faster this response was, the faster viruses had to reproduce to infect any cells mm. in the bat. So this kind of means that bats are selecting for these like really quickly reproducing viruses. That makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, they're more likely to become infected with viruses that are capable of infecting and reproducing very rapidly and effectively since just anything slower wouldn't infect yeah. them at all. And then once these viruses are infecting bats, they're kind of capable of surviving in the bats without mm-hmm. killing them. And so they can spread to other animals while being these really crazy, um, deadly viruses to everything but yeah. bats. <laughs> wow. And so, yeah, so they did this really cool study where they paired this um, lab experiment with computer simulations to show why bats are these reservoirs for really deadly viruses. And then they also discuss how, you know, habitat destruction and our kind of newer proximity to a lot of bats is going to cause a lot more um, of these diseases to be transferred from bats to humans than we've seen in previously. And it's a really, yeah, so it's an all-around interesting study. I encourage people to go read it. I'm pretty sure it's open source. It's mm-hmm. in eLife. So, yeah. So those are the two kind of studies I wanted to highlight. Um, obviously, there are tons of studies coming out right now on coronavirus, but these two were were led by two awesome ladies. So, yeah, that's our shout-out for the week. I was literally talking with about this topic with Andres where he was asking, you know, do you think viruses that have jumped from closely related species versus, like, bats are more deadly? And we were talking about that. Uh, and also, I was talking with my students. Yeah. Like, when I was teaching ecology, we were talking about habitat fragmentation And we were talking about how, you know, more and more habitat fragmentation and more interactions of humans going into generally wildlife areas are going to cause more spillover and things like that. So it's been very thematic thinking about these things. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. But that's great studies. Yeah, I just never, yeah, I never thought about how bat immune systems would, like, differed from ours and how they would select for diseases to be really bad in Mm -hmm. other animals yeah i hadn't thought about that i knew Um, that i think one of the ideas of additionally kind of previously of why bats are reservoirs to so many things is that they because they're flying their temperature gets so high that they kill a lot of things, and so they're not getting sick from these viruses because they're killing off a lot of them. So that might also be a selective force. So yeah. I can see, but I hadn't thought about the fact that all of these immune responses by bats are then selecting for more and more virulent or um, viruses that can spread and replicate more quickly. So that's interesting, and that makes sense. Yeah, they talk a lot about like really specific <clears throat> differences between bat immune systems and 
other like mammal mm-hmm. immune systems in the paper. So I encourage anyone who's like likes to learn about interferons <laughs> and different immune cell types and inflammatory responses to to read it more because it was really interesting but i just didn't want to get into all the details also because i didn't even understand (laughs) it's not my ex area like quite a bit of it but yeah (laughs) like just in reading it in you know 10 Mm -hmm. 15 minutes i wasn't like not quite an expert on the subject no not not quite yet that's why we gotta defer to the experts (laughs) yeah (laughs) I love it. This was a very um, um, human health centric episode, but that's kind of what's on everybody's mind. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not surprised we both went down that that road. Yeah. <laughs> well, everybody, thank you so much cool. for listening. Um, everybody, stay safe. You know, stay inside. Listen to podcasts. Listen to things that keep you entertained. We're all yeah. Watch TV whatever flatten the curve read a book is the motto yeah thank you all for listening and now i'm back so we're gonna have every two weeks we're gonna have our old you know same old same old conversation emma did a great job while i was gone and i i appreciate it but we'll we'll be back with more longer episodes from now on yeah so i don't sound like a crazy person (laughs) no i love that 20 minutes um, and as always, thanks to Artichoke for our theme music, and thanks to Caitlin Friesen for our wonderful art. And as always, go, go stimulate, stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. <laughs> All right. Bye. By circa 1820, she ran a fossil.